Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm your host, Danny. And today we got another interview with the executive director of Free Grace Alliance. This is my good friend, Grant Hawley. I was able to meet meet him in person uh, back in October at the FGA National Conference. And he's a he's a great guy. He, he Dude, you're tall. You're a tall guy. Yeah, I, I didn't realize <laughs> that. I've seen pictures, but... You, you know, he's one of those guys that you uh, you just naturally have to look up to, you know, and of course, <laughs> because of that, he looks down on all of us. Uh, but no, just kidding. But uh, uh, he's a great speaker. Uh, he had a uh, discussion closing out the conference. I believe it was on Ephesians and the church's role and things like that. It was very fascinating. He's author of numerous books to include dispensationalism books. And uh, that's really what the topic is for today. We want to talk a bit about dispensationalism and if you will, the opposite. I don't want to use the false dichotomy saying it's one or the other, but most often people will associate uh, the antonym of dispensationalism with covenant theology. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, the differences, distinctions. But before we get into that, Grant, I appreciate you being here today with us. Do you want to share anything uh, with the people watching, listening about you, your ministries, anything at all? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on. I am, as you mentioned, the executive director of the Free Grace Alliance. And, you know, the Free Grace Alliance is a, a ministry that exists to help uh, get the 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 clear, um, unadulterated gospel out there to the world. And we do that through connecting, encouraging, and equipping uh, different free grace people in ministries and uh, trying to figure out how we can aid people in their ministries. So, mm -hmm. uh, so the thing that makes FGA a little bit different is that, you know, our, our main role is, a is to come alongside other people in ministries and help them along. So I'm, I'm really thankful to work with the FGA and it's um, it's been a blessing. I've been the executive director since 2019, but uh, mm -hmm. of course, you know, this was, it was towards the end of 2019 and then we had COVID and all these sort of things. So, um, you know, it's been a little bit slow um, mm -hmm. getting going, but the ball is really starting to roll, and uh, we're we're really thankful for all the opportunities the Lord has has put forth. We're um, going to be going to uh, to Europe and to Africa this year to to share the word, and uh, we've got regional conferences around the United States as well coming up, and we're we're working on publishing some books and and all mm -hmm. that, which FGA has never really done that in terms of publishing uh, books in print. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we've really got a lot of, a lot of things going on and I'm really thankful for that. I'm also the pastor of a small church called Bold Grace Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And I've got a lovely wife named Tamara and we've mm -hmm. been married for 18 years and I've got a, a son named Rock and he's 13 and, um, he does, he and I do Taekwondo together. Uh, it's awesome. a lot of fun. So do you, yeah. do you guys fight each other? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh we do a little bit but you know it'd yeah. be what you call eggshell sparring so um you spar like you're not trying to break an eggshell so <laughs> i remember i i used to box just you know just for fun and uh so before my son moved out i got a heavy bag i got sparring equipment things like that and me and my son we we would just box each other and and uh my son who was 17 at the time he was just always trying to get that knockout hit with me, you know, with boxing. <laughs> and we got headgear and we got the gloves, but uh, mm -hmm. so is that what Rock tries to do? Is he try to get that knockout blow with you or? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's got a pretty good sidekick. So sometimes I'll catch one in the chest and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I can yeah. only imagine. I could watch boxing all day long, but watching MMA and, and like kickboxing and stuff, I, I just can't do that. You know, mm -hmm. I've seen too many yeah. horror stories, but mm -hmm. didn't you win some awards or something like that with Taekwondo? What was that? 
Yeah, I won a world championship um, this summer in uh, an event called combat sparring, which is basically sparring with a stick. So we, we hit each other with a stick. And <laughs> <laughs> that's a world champion, though, huh? Mm-hmm. Yes, wow. sir. Yep. That's awesome. So so you actually, where's Taekwondo from originally? Korea. Yeah. It's so yes. you're the world champion. So here we have an American Taekwondo, <laughs> the world champion, even over the Koreans. Well, um, yeah, I would, I would say that we'll just you know, stop it there. A, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You can go. Sure. On. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a world championship within, uh, within our organization, which is a pretty, pretty big organization called ATA. Uh-huh. And, um, it's also within my, my age group and, and rank. So I'm, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there better than me, but, um, you know, that's the, that's the best opportunity I have yeah. is, uh, to win in my age group and rank. So. But there's more than three of y'all in your group, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. (laughs) Yep. That's awesome. I saw that. I was like, wow, this. Yep. I'm definitely going to look up to this guy because I don't want to catch an elbow (laughs) on top of the head or something. So, no, that's awesome. Well, Grant, I do really appreciate your friendship and you being here with us today. Uh, Right off the bat, I want to talk a little bit about dispensationalism, sort of get the groundworks laid for that. And then we'll get into covenant theology. But could you explain a couple of questions? First, what is dispensationalism? Is this term even found within scripture? Mm. And then what is a dispensational hermeneutic? So what is it? Is it found within scripture? And what is the hermeneutic of dispensationalism? Yeah, those are really good questions. You know, basically, uh, dispensationalism is what I would call a narrative biblical theology. And I I get that phrase actually from uh, Dr. Elliot Johnson. He wrote a book called A Dispensational Biblical Theology. Mm -hmm. And I I really loved how he put that. um, When we say that it's a narrative biblical theology, um, a lot of times we use a, we use the term biblical theology, and we're not necessarily referring to what's, um, what's technically called biblical theology. When we say biblical theology, and we're talking in a technical technical sense, we're talking about a theology of the Bible. It helps us to understand what's going on in different eras and different um, aspects. What do, what do the different authors talk about? How, how is their perspective involved in it? Mm-hmm. And specifically, what is the narrative of scripture? And so when we talk about dispensationalism as a narrative biblical theology, what we mean is that that dispensationalist helps us to understand the overall narrative of scripture. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea of it is that we understand that God is doing different things with different people at different times. Okay. And so um, those differences are called dispensations mm-hmm. and dispensation. Um, dispensationalism is not a, a biblical term, but dispensations mm-hmm. and dispensation is a biblical term. Okay. Um, it's, it's found a, a few different times, but uh, especially mm-hmm. In Ephesians uh, chapter one and chapter three, mm-hmm. um, there's a discussion about um, dispensation. It's it's from a Greek word um, oikonomia, which is where we get the word economy. Mm. Um, but you know we don't want to read the English back into it. But the basic right. idea is that it's a way that God rules His household, mm-hmm. and so um, you know it's re- it's related to the word for house or household um also in greek and so okay. um so that's it's you might call it a house rule that's what dispensation hmm. means okay yeah and so uh basically if we want to understand what a dispensation is it's what it's what god's instructions are for a certain people at a certain time and so um there are various dispensations that are explained in scripture and i think mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about more about mm-hmm. that later um 
the other aspect, another aspect of the question you asked me was, uh, what are the hermeneutics of dispensation? Yeah, dispensationalism. Right. And I'm actually, I'm a member of a group called the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. And um, along with another, another member named uh, Christopher Cohn, he's, um, yeah. uh, he's, he's the um, head of something called Agathon EDU and uh, okay. also the, the president of, of uh, Colorado Biblical Seminary. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't really like the name of the group um, <laughs> uh, because because uh, we, we'd like to we'd like it to be changed to something like uh, the Dispensational Council on Hermeneutics. Okay. It, because we want to understand that dispensationalism is not a hermeneutics, and that mm-hmm. there's not a hermeneutics that we say this is dispensational hermeneutics. Okay. Um, but what what we want to communicate is that if we have good hermeneutics that will lead yeah. to dispensationalism. And okay. when I say good yeah. hermeneutics, I mean um, that we look at every portion of the Bible mm-hmm. and we ask ourselves the question, what did the author mean by what he wrote? Right. And uh, some people call that literal interpretation. Sometimes mm-hmm. that terminology can get a little confusing because they think we don't recognize figures of speech and things like that. And that's not right. true. Right. But the basic idea is that um, dispensationalism believes that if you have gotten to what the author intended by what he wrote, Mm -hmm. then you have uh, the correct interpretation of that passage. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's actually it seems pretty straightforward and like um, obvious, but um, it's actually not. And most most uh, Christian theologians would not follow that that set of hermeneutics throughout the scripture. So would would you agree that uh, it's sort of just reading any other body of literature that we would try to understand what the original author meant, whether it's a book on the War of 1812 or a letter or a poem? Reading scripture, isn't it the same thing in your mind that you're just trying to find out what is the intention, what's the meaning, what's the history and things like that? Yeah, it it really is. It's, um, you know, there's some... There's there's a lot of discussion out there about it, and and when you get into English classes and things, I'm I'm an English major. Oh, okay. Um, that sounds so I, exciting. I got, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I I actually enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, yeah. if you if you like to read and write, uh, right. which I do. So, but you know, I I was um, an English major at the University of North Texas, and and sometimes you have people um, ask questions like, um, well, what does this mean to you, and okay. and things like yeah. that, and um and sometimes people take those ideas and they think well i can just make it mean whatever i want i want it to mean right um but but i think even even at um even at a you know a secular university mm-hmm. and when you're talking about uh, what does what do what does what does a book mean we're we're trying to get at what the author meant right um and there is some subjectivity in that and people have some disagreements sometimes and mm-hmm people might apply things differently they might think well this um it this relates to my life in this way and someone else might have a different different right. view of that and that's probably true of scripture too we have different applications of things but um but yeah i think you know really any utterance you know we would say an utterance mm-hmm. would be something written or something spoken mm-hmm. uh we're really trying to understand what the author or speaker meant right. so not I've always considered it, and you may be changing my mind, but I've always considered it a dispensational framework of mm-hmm. interpretation. But it, from what you're saying, it's just normal interpretation that leads to a dispensational understanding. Yep. And so I've always looked at it as the literal, 
grammatical historical uh, mm-hmm. uh, aspect of it. So definitely, I, I want to go ahead and maybe we could talk a little bit more about that offline and, and really unpack that and stuff. But I, I think that's the first time I've heard that before. And I'm sure it's been around quite a long. I just I've only recently gotten to free grace theology and dispensationalism and stuff like that. Hence why I'm asking you all these questions today. So but I do like being enlightened. So I appreciate that. Uh, as far as dispensationalism is concerned, uh, you made mention that it's sort of like uh, it's, I guess, literally house rule, how God stewards and manages the affairs, if you will, of mankind. <coughs> Excuse me. So. What establishes a dispensation? And then from what I understand, there's typically seven commonly held dispensations within scripture. Uh, what are those? And and do you agree with those seven? Do you believe there's more or less? I know there's a variance of opinions as far as what constitutes. So could you elaborate a little bit on what the dispensations are and what you believe uh, scripture talks about? Yeah, so um, that's where I'm, you know, I might differ a little bit mm-hmm. with a lot of dispensationalists, dispensationalists about, you know, what defines a dispensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there are typically seven dispensations that that uh, dispensationalists point to. Right. Um, and there, there are some variances. I mean, um, we, we call that seven dispensational system usually, you know, kind of traditional dispensationalism. Okay. Um, but the earlier dispensationalists didn't hold to those seven. Um, Darby only held to four dispensations, oh, okay. for example. Yeah. Um, Elliot Johnson also only holds to four because he doesn't see um, any dispensation prior to uh, to Abraham being a dispensation. Okay, mm-hmm. he doesn't think they qualify. Okay, but the basic idea is that uh, dispensation begins with the set of instructions for men. And then it moves to uh, demonstrate man's failure to obey um, and concludes with a judgment and a work of God's grace. And, you know, some people may, maybe they don't always uh, agree with that whole pattern, but that's, it seems, it seems to play out that way. It's, you know, the um, Schaefer talks about it like that. And, and I, I think there's some wisdom in it. I, I do see that pattern. But a, a dispensation's ending doesn't necessarily wipe away all of its instructions for future dispensations. But when there's a conflict between dispensation dispensational instructions, the new commands supersede the previous ones. Okay. And so, you know, one uh, very clear example is, you know, you have the um, dispensation that has to do with um, with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave them a specific set of instructions and, and this will illustrate a little bit of what I mean by uh, my differences between uh, what I see and what some dispensationalists see. Right. Typically that dispensation is called the dispensation of innocence. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't like that because it's, it's a soteriological distinction, which Mm. the dispensations are not soteriological. They have to do with the mission. The, uh, when I say soteriological, I'm talking about, um, the doctrine of salvation, mm-hmm. um, all salvation has always been by grace through faith and that hasn't changed, um, right. I guess from the fall, but, uh, even, even when we're talking about how we define these dispensations, I, I think that it's better to call that dispensation, the dispensation of filling and dominion, because okay. the instruction that was given to, to Adam and Eve, uh, normally the focus is just on don't eat of the tree, but that was just sort of, um, you oh, know, one yeah. little extra thing, but the, the main mission that they were given right. is be fruitful and fill the earth, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion. Yeah. 
And so they were supposed to represent uh, God as God's image. Mm-hmm. And actually like to, um, there's a, um, there's some, some discussion out there about what it means to be made in the image of God and all that kind of thing. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's actually better to look at it to say that we were made as the image of God. Okay. And that's an illustration that Moses would have understood um, because in his day, the, um, the kings of the various lands would set up images of themselves right. that would declare who the ruler is in that land. Mm-hmm. And so um, people walking through um, a certain country or a kingdom would understand, okay, this is this person's kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so we're supposed to be that for God and people would, would um, specifically, I would say, you know, the angelic beings would look at the earth and say, this is God's. Okay. okay. And so uh, we were supposed to be that and um, it involved, you know, being fruitful and multiplying, mm-hmm. but also um, filling the whole earth and having dominion. And there's the, the implication that yeah. they were supposed to ex- ex- um, expand, expand Eden throughout the whole world. Right. And Eden actually means like pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was that, you know, the, the whole earth would be a, a pleasurable place for the, for communion with God and um, right. enjoyment of his creation. And, and so that's really what the mission was, was for Adam and Eve. And, and yeah. yes, they did disobey by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And that disobedience is what ended the dispensation. And if you look at what happens after that, there's actually, there aren't any instructions given in the next dispensation. Uh, but the next time you see um, a set of instructions come up, mm-hmm. it's, it's after Noah. And it's not, right. it's not said that, um, it's not said that they should um, have dominion anymore. Mm-hmm. He is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right. But he didn't say anything about having dominion. And that's because dominion had been handed over to Satan. Um, okay of this uh-huh. earth and so so and then you know of course w- with with Noah, there was also the institution of human government and that's normally right. the way that that dispensation is discussed um because you know god said that if man sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed right and so that kind of um helps you understand hopefully what what um kind of defines a dispensation um, right. i do think i do see seven dispensations mm-hmm. though if you wanted to argue with me that the dispensation of conscience isn't really a dispensation then i i wouldn't right. argue with you um some people like uh christopher Cohn sees 14 dispensations and some oh, of them wow. being concurrent and different is things it, so is that the most you've heard of it is yeah yeah and you know as, as i mentioned darby saw four and so did um elliot johnson yeah. so so there's so no Elliot's. clear definitive you know, scriptural proof saying there's seven, there's four, there's 14. It's just part of us trying to see, okay, define dispensation, Mm -hmm. what it is, and then try to see how is that working out? Like you said, the instruction, the failure, Mm -hmm. and then the judgment and then the obedience aspect. And do we see this sort of uh, pattern Mm -hmm. in each of those areas? Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just, no question popped into my head. Yeah, it's fine. And I, you know, I I think that, you know, when we talk about the number of dispensations, that's not mm-hmm. really, you know, super important. But I, I think that if the the most important thing is that we recognize mm-hmm. a distinction between the dispensation of law, the dispensation of, of you know, yeah, grace, or I would actually, I'd want to call it the dispensation okay. of the church. church age, yeah. The church is not a dispensation. Mm-hmm. okay, But it's what characterizes this dispensation. It's so, um, 
you know, uh, that's why I w that's why I would like to to talk mm -hmm. about that, or you you might even call it the dispensation of the mystery. I don't mind that at all, um, but I don't like dispensation of grace because again, that's a soteriological uh, distinction, and it's all salvation that's, has always been by grace, right? That's true. So because dispensation of grace is always uh, contrasted with the law, mm -hmm. and the dispensation of law wasn't soteriological either. Mm -mm. So it was just a means of economy, like you were saying, if you will, house rule, mosaic mm -hmm. law with Israel. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, you can elaborate as you were uh, talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I just would, would say that as long as you recognize the differences between the dispensation of law, the dispensation of whatever you want to call this one, um, yeah. mystery or church or grace, and the, the dispensation of the kingdom, as long as you have dis distinctions between those three, then um, you've got a framework that you can build, you know, that dispensational understanding from. That's excellent, because <clears throat> when I first got involved in dispensationalism, at least looking at the dispensations per se, I personally was having a hard time trying to find all seven and trying to understand and wrap my head around how people see all these different aspects in all seven. And so yeah. I'm glad to hear that there's other people like me uh, that are in similar mindset and not trying to fit within a tradition well i wouldn't even say traditional because if darby did only held the four mm -hmm. you know uh, you're looking at what was darby 100 years 200 years ago um darby he basically defined dispensationalism from his perspective in about 1828 1828 so, and, and yeah. so but one thing we do want to get across is the fact that even though the dispensations uh aren't are probably more philosophical as far as what establishes the concept of dispensations is totally biblical. Mm -hmm. The concept of how God manages and stewards is biblical. It's just us trying to figure out, okay, what establishes it. And that's yep. where these variants of thought come in. Yeah. Okay. And I, I would also just want to add that, that part of the difference is that, you know, some people have different criteria for what they would call a dispensation. It's not yeah. that they don't see changes between mm -hmm. say Adam and Eve in the garden versus, um, the time between the fall and Noah or All the right. time between Noah and, and, uh, Abraham, mm -hmm. they, they see the distinctions. They just may not think it meets a threshold of what, of what they would define as a dispensation. Right. No, definitely. So, okay. So contrasting with dispensationalism, I do want to get into covenant theology. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I heard of years back. And uh, I believe I ignorantly, equated replacement theology with covenant although i think they're somewhat similar but there's distinctions and maybe you can correct me on that but specifically speaking and i do believe replacement theology is a part of covenant theology uh but what is covenant theology where did it originate from and like we talked about a dispensational interpretation framework what is a covenant theology uh, hermeneutic and so what is uh, covenant theology where does it start from and what how do they interpret the bible okay so i, I mentioned that dispensationalism is something that you would call a, a, a narrative biblical theology right and covenant theology is also a narrative biblical theology and okay. so uh, again when i say biblical theology i don't mean theology that is biblical i mean a theology about the bible okay and so um, it's it's kind of interesting because uh, dispensationalism came out of a of a hermeneutic. There was okay. there was the hermeneutic of literal interpretation or 
what I would call normal interpretation. Mm -hmm. And from that, the dispensations came. Um, but covenant theology was actually the other way around. It, it uh, started with a systematic theology, mm -hmm. which is um, essentially it's Calvinism. Um, okay. They had, they had, uh, uh, you know, certain, certain understandings about soteriology mm -hmm. and then covenant theology was built as a, um, a framework to explain how um, how Calvinists see the scripture from a systematic standpoint. And okay. so it was developed by a guy named uh, Johannes uh, Cocheus or Cocheusa um, in the 17th century. It was, it was first published in 1648. It's a, it's a book called the doctrine of the covenant and Testament of God. And it uh, it systemized covenant theology um, as like a treatise. So that's the okay. first time this this was ever actually put out there. Uh, some elements of covenant theology were present from quite a bit before that. There's there's um, there are different millennial views, for example. Okay. And when I say millennial views, it it means what do you do with the kingdom? Okay. What how do you understand that? And mm -hmm. uh, the three basic views of that are premillennial, which is uh, the dispensational viewpoint, which is that Christ will return and in um, bodily form, mm -hmm. he will set up his kingdom, um, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, which is mm -hmm. the promise of um, uh, that David's uh, heir would sit on the throne of Israel. Right. And he'll rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, and on this earth, that's, that's what's called premillennialism. There's a, a view called postmillennialism, which is becoming a lot more popular these days, and it, it, it seems to be driven by politics, but it's the idea oh. that the church will establish the kingdom. Um, and so the, the idea is, again, that, that the church establishes the kingdom on earth through you know controlling the government and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and then christ will return at the end and that's where you get post-millennial christ's return is at the end of the kingdom in that view do they try to teach that the church also has to bring in this utopian type society mm -hmm. yeah yep. which which it kind of hard to argue when you get into I think it's second Timothy where it says, you know, men will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, blasphemers, unthankful, truce breakers, and just uh, apostasy that'll happen. But yeah. okay, so post post millennialism, and then what was the mm -hmm. third one? Yeah, the third one is uh, called amillennialism, and it's the idea that there isn't going to be a millennial kingdom, but that mm -hmm. it's it's um, metaphorical, mm -hmm. and it's that Christ is ruling in the hearts of believers. Okay. Hmm. Um, so those are the, the three views and, and typically covenant theology will have either an amillennial or post-millennial hmm. uh, perspective. There are some covenant premillennialists, but uh, there's, there's some differences with that as well. But um, covenant theology is um, not based on the biblical covenants. It's um, the biblical covenants. We might talk about you know, the Abrahamic covenant, which is, um, well, I guess I'm a little different from some other dispensationalists okay. in that too. Well, what was your thought then? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 um, I think that essentially the, the Abrahamic covenant is not the call of Abraham from Genesis 12, one to three, but it's the, the promise that was made in, in Genesis 15, okay. that Ab Abraham would have an heir and a land for that heir. Okay, that's specifically defined defined would, in the. Would you associate the, the blessing as well as part of the Abrahamic covenant? Um, that I'll well, bless I would, that bless you. Yeah, so I um, 
I wouldn't. Okay. Um, well, I would in a sense that that it's 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 part of the way that they're that he is blessed. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Yes. I didn't mean to put you on a spot. I was just yeah. Curious. No. Uh, <laughs> so the the calling of Abraham. Yeah. Is it it ends up being defined it 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 plays out in different ways and the the abrahamic covenant is part of that calling being played out okay okay Okay. Uh but i i would say that the covenant is actually right there at the end of chapter 15 when it says like that they cut a covenant they actually cut the animals in half and the god walks down god walks through it or Mm -hmm. uh, moves through it as a as a as an oven a burning oven and then um and then the there's there's the specific laying out of of what the terms of the covenant are which is basically abraham doesn't have any responsibility mm-hmm. um for the covenant but that god does alone mm-hmm. and it's that god will give him that defined land right and so um so but the abrahamic covenant is not one of the covenants the davidic covenant which is you know the idea that again um david's son will rule on his throne forever that's that's not one of these covenants, the new covenant is not one of these covenants. Within covenant um, theologies perspective. Within covenant theology. Yeah. Yeah. They have they have two covenants. And the covenants that um that they have are are typically called the covenant of works and mm-hmm. the covenant of grace, or sometimes sometimes the covenant of grace is called the covenant of redemption. Okay. But the covenant of works is the idea that it's it's between Adam and God, which promises eternal life to Adam. And his posterity in exchange for perfect works obedience and right. so um of course that's never stated in scripture um you can maybe get there by implication but um you know that's an extra biblical covenant as well right the covenant of grace though is said to be between god and christ in which christ promises to die for the elect in exchange for their salvation and you know god promises to give um christ a bride in um in exchange for his his works obedience okay so again that's not found in scripture there's um there's a there's a um a a definition of the covenant of of grace that was given by um charles spurgeon who was a covenant theologian he was a preacher i don't want to say covenant theologian he was he believed in covenant theology and he was a very um successful and well-known preacher and he said um in this he's playing out this this covenant um, from the father i the most high jehovah do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved son a people countless beyond the number of the stars who shall be by him washed from sin by him preserved and kept and led and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing I covenant by oath and swear by myself because I can swear by no greater that Mm -hmm. those whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merit of the blood to these. I will give a perfect righteousness. These I will adopt and make my sons and daughters and these shall reign with him with me through Christ eternally. And then the son's part in the covenant is my father on my part. I covenant that in the fullness of time, I will become man I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world. And for my people, I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness, which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt uh, exact their debts upon me. 
the chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law, all uh, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend to heaven. I will intercede for them at thy right hand. I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of them uh, whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. And I will bring all my sheep of whom by thy blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd. I will bring everyone safe to thee at last. And so that's, that's you know, one imagining of the covenant that so. occurred again be before time began. And it's not in scripture. This, these are just you know, for lack of a better word, they're made up. So, so all that was in first person, mm -hmm. uh, what, what you just read. And that was, that was from Spurgeon. Mm -hmm. What exactly, what, why, why did he put that in first person? Is this something like you said, he just thought of and wanted to capture it or. Yeah. It's like, this is what the father said to the son. And this is what the son said to the father. Right. So, sort of similar to like, like at the conference when Dr. Shea had his, uh, his plenary session. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating. I, I love Dr. Shea and I, we're actually going to interview him here in a few days, but he had this, uh, he obviously said this wasn't, tr you know, actual, but if Jesus wrote a letter, you know, he would believe that Jesus would write. And then he read a, a, a fictitious letter from Jesus to certain people uh, that Jesus was thanking for their service and blessing to mm -hmm. Jesus, you know? So would it be mm -hmm. similar to that? What Spurgeon was trying to do? Yeah. Okay. So trying yeah. to just have vividness and just paint imagination, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's all he's doing. He's, you know, Spurgeon was a great preacher. And so, mm -hmm. you know, he, he knew how to capture the hearts and minds of men. And, um, and he was doing that with his, his idea yeah. of covenant theology, which is, you know, it's, it's, that's, that is covenant theology. Some people might express it just a little differently mm -hmm. if they were to have the same exercise, but right. You can see that you know he he brings in some biblical allusions to it, right. but these are these are extra biblical covenants, and there there are some problems with it. You know, mm -hmm. there's the assumption in there that Christ died only for the elect. Right. There's the assumption of uh, perseverance of the saints, and it's, it's just basically an expression of Calvinism of Calvinism in right. a in a form of of a narrative that they're putting onto the Bible. Right. dispensationalism gets its narrative from the bible and covenant theology puts it on the bible and you know the basic the basic thing that that makes covenant theology um what what makes it i think really um uh, a hindrance to people mm -hmm. in understanding the scripture is because it it it's it only has two covenants to cover the whole of scripture right and so the covenant of works is just in the in the garden of eden until the fall all right and then the covenant of grace is said to be everything else after that mm -hmm. and so they see they they see the abrahamic covenant and the davidic covenant and the new covenant as being just expressions of that covenant of grace mm -hmm. which i can see how you can get there but they also see the covenant of the of of moses as just being an expression of of, of this grace and and of this covenant of grace they say it's the same thing mm -hmm. and they don't see any any um end to the the covenant of the law okay mm -hmm. or the covenant of moses they see that continuing and so um and you end up also with only one people 
Um, it's it's called Israel most of the time throughout the Old Testament. Okay. It's never called the church. And it's called the church most of the time in the New Testament, but they see it only as one people. They don't see a distinction between Israel and the church. And so when they're reading the Old Testament and they see that Israel is supposed to keep the law of Moses, they interpret that as we are supposed to keep the law of Moses. And this is how um, essentially God affects the salvation that was that that Christ promises God that he would affect for us. Okay. Yeah, by by keeping off. the law. Uh-huh. So is this so like you, you, you pointed out earlier. Whereas, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but where dispensationalists truly try to start from a literal understanding of scripture based on context and history and culture and authorial intent, and then to draw out and then draw that out so that we can have our framework in our mind from the text exegesis, seems like covenant theology really starts in the mind and the presuppositions and inserts that into the text and, and sort of makes the text fit their, I call it philosophical theology. It's mm -hmm. what they're thinking and they're making scripture say. Uh, other words, eisegesis is a common term that's similar uh, mm -hmm. to that as well. And so is that why there's a lot of uh, issues? Like, like for instance, I, I think we were getting into this, but let, let's say, for instance, Matthew chapter 7. I watch a lot of debates and I watch a lot of debates between free grace and lordship. And, and naturally Matthew seven always comes up by the fruit. You all know them. Right. And, and Jesus says that he says a good tree can't bear evil fruit and evil tree can't bear good fruit. Mm -hmm. And so G Jesus in G Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, I believe he says is uh, beware of false prophets. And so from my understanding in that day, a prophet to Israel was like a Jonah, was like a John the Baptist, uh, uh, thus saith the Lord type guy. Someone that comes and says, this is what God says. And Deuteronomy 18 says, if the prophet says something in my name and it comes to pass, believe him. If it doesn't come to pass, he's not a prophet of mine. So when Jesus says, beware of false prophets, you know, by their fruit, you will know them. To me, it's talking about the people and what they say about God and about Messiah specifically there at that dispensation. Yeah. But so many times the lordship and covenant theologians, they'll take that verse and then they'll get to verse 20. I think it is where Lord, Lord, not everyone, you know, will enter into the kingdom of, of God. And they'll automatically equate the fruit to works. Yep. If you have works, then you're able to get into the kingdom because then you're proving yourself a genuine Christian, as opposed to seeing what is a prophet during that day. And so, with verses like that and how both come to that passage, why is it so difficult for them to see, in my view, not all of them, but see that distinction between what is a false prophet in the, you know what I mean? How can we help have these discussions with them? Yeah, it, it's it's kind of tough because you, you do have to establish you know, a, a basis of authority when you're having a discussion with anybody, okay. a common, a common basis of authority. And if you don't have that, then it's very difficult to um, really have a conversation with somebody that's going to go anywhere. Now, what um, do you mean by basis of authority? Yeah. So, so um, both dispensationalists and covenant theologians would agree that their authority is uh, the Bible. Okay. Right. 
And covenant theologians might also mention uh, like the Westminster Confession of Faith okay, as an right. authority. Um, so you have you have in a sense a common basis of authority, but you don't have a common way to understand the authority when it comes mm -hmm. to scripture. Right. And because covenant theologians see everything, everything in scripture, if you, if you, if you were listening to how I described these covenants, those covenants were all about soteriology, every bit of it. Mm. And they see, so they see everything in scripture as being about salvation. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't see any other category that is in any significant way. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they approach any passage of scripture, they're coming with the assumption that this passage is about salvation. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's the biggest problem when, when, um, when you're, when you're having a discussion about soteriology with a covenant theologian is because you have that, that different assumption. And while the dispensationalist wants to say, well, let's look and see what the context says that mm -hmm. the, that the topic of discussion is. And we can look at that passage that you mentioned and say, well, it says, beware of false prophets. You will know them, the false prophets by their fruits. Right. And then if you compare that with uh, actually the, 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 the recording of the sermon, I, I do think I do think in Luke it's also the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, okay. some people call oh. that the Sermon on the Plain. I think it is the Sermon on the Mount, just a okay. different recording of it. But if you look there, um, it's very clearly defined as the words that they speak. If you look at Matthew chapter twelve, um, he says he says a very similar. He uses very similar language language and talks about how the words spoken are the fruit. Right, and so it makes perfect sense to say beware of false prophets who come to you as, um, as sheep wolves in sheep's clothing. clothing yeah. Right. If you look at a wolf in sheep's clothing, that looks like a sheep, right. But listen to what it's saying. Okay. Listen to what it's saying. A wolf in, she wolf in sheep's clothing will still make the sounds of a wolf. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it, it makes perfect sense to say, yeah, you will know a false prophet by what he says. Right. Mm -hmm. um and that's what that's what the context bears out but if you come to it with the assumption that this is about how you, how do you know you're saved or how do you get saved then you know you're going to interpret the passage in that light um so really if, i i feel like i feel like if you're going to have a discussion with um with anybody coming from a covenant theolo theology perspective you have to somehow establish that the context defines the topic right. for any passage. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes that's not as difficult as you might think because people can, can say, Oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. it depends how ingrained they are in it. Right. But there's something else you mentioned earlier um, that I, I think is important because you, you know, you were, you were talking, you were, you said, you know, you didn't want to sound arrogant and, and all this. And, and um, I agree with that, but I also very, very strongly agree that, you believe that dispensationalism is the correct way to understand scripture. Definitely. Um, but the, the, the big difference is that, you know, you had the, you said that, that, that uh, covenant theology kind of puts upon the text, what, right. it, what um, the narrative is mm -hmm. rather than dispensationalism, which gets it out of the text. And if you look at that, it makes perfect sense because um, historically mm -hmm. um, I mentioned that covenant theology was defined in 1648 
Right. And before that, you have all the writings of Calvin, you have all the writings of Beza, you have all the writings of Luther, you have all the writings of um, Arminius, you have all the writings mm -hmm. of um, of William Perkins, and you have the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And all those things define the theology of both Calvinists, Calvinists and Arminians. Mm -hmm. And then, so they had all of that before they ever had a biblical theology. Mm. With dispensationalists, you had the very first thing that was ever written from that group that really established of an. There were some older dispensationalists who defined dispensationalism. Okay, but Darby and those guys were the first ones who um, really put it together and then had a following that continued okay. from them. Uh -huh. And the very first things they did was define biblical theology. Mm -hmm. And from a from a literal grammatical historical pers um, hermeneutics perspective, right. And so you have that definition, you have that um, biblical theology first, and then you don't get a dispensational systematic theology until 1948. Mm. You're talking about over a hundred years of people wrestling with scripture yeah. before before from that perspective with that biblical theology before anybody ever wrote a a systematic theology from that perspective, yeah. which is the way it should be. Okay. Systematic theology should be built upon our biblical theology, which should be built mm. upon our hermeneutics. Huh, yeah. And, and the covenant theologians did it the exact opposite. Right. So that makes, that gives me a picture of, you know, like a pyramid, you know, mm -hmm. like if you, I just recently talked about the caste system uh, when we got into James chapter two and playing favorites and whatnot and looking into India in Hinduism and the caste system there, and they sort of show it with a, dia a diagram of a triangle on different levels within their caste system. And so what you just said probably would make a really good graphic if it's not already there that shows how does dispensationalists get to the text with the foundation of that pyramid being biblical theology. And then from there, the different aspects of refining it. And, and yeah, actually, let me, let me. Let me um, just, you know, clarify. It should be hermeneutics at the bottom. Hermeneutics, right? right. Yeah, yeah. You did say that. And then biblical that. theology, yep. and then systematic on top of that. You did yeah. say that hermeneutic, and then biblical theology, and but that would make a good, you know, quick graphic too. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you're uh, looking at doing a graphic or something for any future writings, but that would be a good thought. You could contrast dispensationalist and covenant theology aspects of it. But, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so staying with how there's a difference between dispensationalist and covenant theology and how we come to the text from my mm -hmm. understanding. And again, watching a lot of debates between lordship and free grace, a lot of times, if not every time the covenant theologian or lordship crowd, they believe the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ mm -hmm. is the same thing as the great white throne judgment. Whereas mm -hmm. I see the great white throne judgment in revelation chapter 20 and the Bema seat judgment, sometime prior to and mm -hmm. they're different aspects different why is it in your mind the covenant theologians conflate and see the two as the same thing as mm -hmm. opposed to what scripture records detail wise what are your thoughts yeah so the the basic thing that that leads to that is that um most covenant theologians drop the millennium out and so while dispensationalists see all these passage passages that promise rewards in the kingdom, right. okay, uh, for obedience and a judgment related to that, and then they see the great white throne judgment appear after the millennium, 
Okay. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have the millennium in there, it's very easy to conflate the two. Okay. And so there's a, there's a quote that I think is pretty telling from, um, from John Piper, who's a, he's a covenant theologian. And he, um, he talks about how at the great white throne, all the dead will appear before that. And he's, he's trying to, to say that all of humankind will appear before this judgment to be judged by their works to determine if they're saved or not. Right. And um, the interesting thing there is that, you know, if you're a dispensationalist, you um, are sitting here looking at uh, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Mm -hmm. And you see that these people are being pulled out of the grave or out of the water mm -hmm. or out of, you know, um, physical destruction to stand before the judgment. Okay. Mm -hmm. But again, this is temporarily right after the millennium. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, well, well, are any believers in the grave? Are any believers in the water? Or have we already been resurrected and living with, with Christ on earth for a thousand right. years? And I think, mm -hmm. you know, for us, it's really easy to see that distinction. Yeah. But uh, when you don't believe that there is a, a, a millennium or a real millennium, right? which is interesting because Piper is actually a covenant premillennialist, but he's inconsistent <laughs> there. Oh. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, I don't know. Maybe there's something about covenant premillennialism that, that changes how you'd see that. I don't, I don't think so, but I think he's just being inconsistent. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, you just, um, you, you drop that millennium out and, and mm -hmm. then, um, you end up very easily conflating the two. And, and there's also the aspect that, as I mentioned, covenant theologians, see everything is related to salvation all the way through scripture right. and so they see a judgment based on works to determine reward and they conflate the reward with salvation and they conflate that judgment with a judgment to determine whether you're saved or not and so they just mash the two together and say that's just one judgment yeah i think that w when you keep referencing the fact that they see salvation everything being salvific through the entire narrative covenants and everything that would then make sense on why they see the judgment seat of Christ not as scripture records, but as a salvific event. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they can put that alongside the great white throne judgment, see them as the two. Mm -hmm. And so with their mindset of everything being soteriological, now to me, it makes sense on why they see it like that. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing and my whole interest in this isn't just to know what they teach and believe, but it's how can we have discussions mm -hmm. with people mm -hmm. uh, to go ahead and refine theology to help pull people out of false uh, philosophical theology and, and mm -hmm. get to a truer understanding of scripture. And that's what I meant when I said, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant, you know, but you and I would completely agree that dispensationalist teaching and hermeneutic is the way of scripture you know mm -hmm. a literal understanding mm -hmm. but and, and so i guess in a sense dispensationalists do have a monopoly on the hermeneutic because they do it correctly mm -hmm. but it, it just sounds arrogant you know what i mean yeah so that's yeah it does talk, and i you know i i don't you know there are there are a few things in scripture where i i think you know this is just so clear that you you have to stand yeah. firm and and explain it i i, I do think you know dispensationalism is one of those um i definitely would agree but I, I think for the first time ever 
what you said as far as how they see all these covenants and aspects as being soteriological. That's the first time it ever made sense in my mind why they can see certain things these ways. And so I appreciate that, Grant. Uh, sure. And, it, you know, to follow up, you, you mentioned that this is really about, you know, how do you talk to people coming from a covenant theology mm -hmm. theology standpoint and i i think that you know regardless of of those things that i mentioned you can still go to something like um uh first corinthians 3 mm -hmm. and you see there that that the outcome of that judgment it says that if anyone's work is burned and you can you can yeah. look at that word and the word the word in the greek it doesn't just mean to be like singed it means to be burnt to total ruin like there's nothing okay. left except uh -huh. ashes and so if anyone's work is burned up completely, mm -hmm. it still says he himself will be saved. He'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Right. And so you, you can, you can point to the idea that, you know, from that passage that there's a, that there's a judgment that is only for people who are saved. Right. Um, and then you can also look at uh, the parable of the Minas in Luke. Mm. And in the parable of the, the Minas, there are two different groups that it starts with. It starts with um, servants who are given the Minas and then judged. Right. And then, it, and then there's a separate group of enemies. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this one's going to be a little more difficult if you're talking to an Arminian versus a Calvinist. But okay. if you're talking to a Calvinist, you can point out to, look, these people, only these servants were the ones given the minas. Mm -hmm. And yes, in the end, one of these servants loses his mina. Okay. And you'll have to establish the, the mina represents responsibility, not mm -hmm. salvation. And, um, and that he didn't do anything with it, but he's still not one of the enemies. Okay. Right. Even though he experiences discipline. He's mm -hmm. still not one of the enemies. And it's only at the end where he says, and bring these enemies before my, before me and slay them before me, mm -hmm. slay them in my presence. And so, um, so there's definitely a difference in treatment between yeah. the, the servants, even the unfaithful one right. and the enemies. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Uh, you alluded to this a little bit earlier as far as the term Israel. How does covenant theology? How does covenant theology view Israel? Is Israel distinct? Uh, did the church replace Israel uh, when they rejected the Messiah? Uh, who was Israel within covenant theology? Yeah, so Israel is just an, uh, another name for all the saved people of God in covenant theology. Okay. Okay. A dispensationalist looks at Israel and they see, well, this is the descendants of of Jacob. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or you can stay in certain contexts that narrows it to the servants of, of Jacob who also are believers. Okay. okay? Uh -huh. um, but or descendants of Jacob who are also believers. Um, but they 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 would use the term Israel to refer to the church mm -hmm. and they would use the term church to refer to Israel mm -hmm. and they, they don't see a distinction. And that's interesting, especially when you're in the entirety of the old Testament. And when you do have Gentiles that do end up getting say they, they align themselves and assimilate into the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and then even like in Romans 11, where mm -hmm. it says Gentiles were, were grafted in mm -hmm. to Israel. Yeah. I, I would actually, um, I would actually want to say that it's not that we're grafted into Israel; it's we're grafted into the promises made the to promises, Abraham. Promises, the covenant. Okay. Yeah, not not to any of the covenants made to Israel, but to to the promises made to Abraham. 
Yeah. Okay. And I wouldn't even say the Abrahamic covenant. I would just say the, you know, when, when it says in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that, mm -hmm. that would, uh, that would be the reference that we're looking at. We're, okay. we're, we're, we're grafted into his calling and blessing. Well, okay. So if covenant theology, they see Israel and the elect save Christians, they're all one in the same. Uh, how do they view prophecy? Cause there's some prophetic passages that seem to speak only of Israel. Uh, how does covenant theology understand prophecy? Yes. Yeah, so that gets into the idea that you, you mentioned about replacement theology. And I, uh -huh. um, I, um, I prefer not to use the term replacement theology because it's not something that, that covenant theologians would embrace. Okay. Um, cause it's a little bit different. What they would say is that there is, um, there's fulfillment that the church, that the church gets the benefits of the promises to Israel, but they would say that that's through Christ who is, who is a, a Jew. Right. And so because we are in Christ, therefore those promises become our promises. Okay. Real quick. Um, real quick. Yeah. So you mentioned, I was actually making a note of this, but you mentioned that they would say that the church, how'd you say received the promises to Israel? Yeah, they 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 they're the beneficiaries of of the promises the to Israel. Church yeah. is the beneficiaries of Israel. Mm -hmm. How is that not contradictory to their previous view of saying the church is Israel? Yeah, so that's what that's what they would they would no, I mean, um, yeah. I um I'm kind of I'm kind of mixing a dispensational perspective in there when okay. I'm defining that. Uh -huh. Um, they they would. They just they they don't see a distinction, right, mm -hmm. um, between Israel and the church. And so when they say that the church is the beneficiaries of the the promises of Israel, they say, uh -huh. well, that's that's just because these promises were made to them, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And right. so, um, yeah, they anyway, and they will actually they will use the term Israel to refer to the church, right? Um, okay. So, so when you were talking about. Uh, you don't like to use the term replacement theology. And I can understand, especially if that's not true to what they believe. We want to be honest with what their beliefs and their teachings yeah. are. Uh, what do they do with uh, prophecies of Israel? Like, for instance, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, uh, the prophecy to Daniel says is, uh, this is for your people and your city, talking about the Jewish people and Jerusalem. And there's six things that's mentioned, three positive and three negative. Uh, how do they see prophecies like that that are very Israeli-centric? Uh, yeah. You know, it, is it just the conflation aspect? Yeah, so um, it, there's there's two different things that happen. Okay. Um, the, and they're, they're not always, it's not always uniformly expressed, but right. the two things that happen is, is that sometimes they will take all of the positive promises, mm -hmm. promises of blessing and, and say that the church benefits from those. And then they will take all the negative, all the promises of, of wrath or, or destruction or whatever, and they will apply those to physical Israel. Okay. The actual descendants of Jacob. Wow. Really? Yeah. So the church gets all of the benefits and none of the, none of the negative. And then the other, the other tool that's used there is basically what, um, you know, we would call allegorizing. Mm -hmm. So they, they would interpret it 
figuratively. Right. Um, you know, a lot of things are... that. What would it matter if they're a millennial on how they view prophecy as well? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, those are, those are all going to be different. Like yeah. the post, the post-millennial post-millennialists would, would view like the promises that are relative to the kingdom, like the idea of, uh, you know, that the, the church will rule or will rule alongside Christ uh-huh. um, with the rod of iron. They will say, well, this is our job to, to rule the world with a rod of iron. Right. Uh-huh. And um and so, so yeah, there's going to be some different applications. The, the amillennialist might be more likely to say that we're supposed to rule over our own hearts, you know, with a rod okay. of iron, something like that. Interesting. Uh, so that, that was quite a lot about covenant theology. And so mm-hmm. I appreciate all the insight. It's really helping me and really uh, giving me a lot of clarity when I'm watching these debates and and I'm still debating on whether I'm going to do a debate or not. Um, I think about debates is what's the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like watching it, especially in the live chats, people's minds are all made up already and they're just arguing with each other, their viewpoint. So is there any benefit and purpose in it? That's why I'd mm-hmm. rather discuss than debate personally. But yeah. uh, so we spent a lot of time about covenant theology. I do want to get back into dispensationalism just for a couple sure. questions. And then uh, I'll let you go because I know you're probably a busy man, but all right, so when we're looking at the covenants, uh, the different covenants of God, uh, whether you're looking at Mosaic Covenant, New Covenant, Davidic Covenant, Land Covenant, things like that, uh, do all of those covenants uh, apply to uh, Israel only uh, from a dispensational perspective? Does the church benefit in any of those? And if the church does, how does what ones like Davidic Covenant, mm-hmm. how would the church benefit in that? And so thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I would say that that you know there's there's two different questions there. The the first is is our is the church of like I, I would define it as a, is a, is the church a party to any of these covenants? And I would say no, not even okay. the new covenant. You said a and, party. Yeah, a party okay. to like like are they are they one of the um, the people that would sign the covenant right if okay. it were written out All on right. a piece of paper? And I would say no, mm-hmm. um, again, not even the new covenant. And I know that not all dispensationalists would agree with me on that. Okay. Um, there's, uh, I mentioned Dr. Dr. Cohn a couple of times, mm-hmm. but he's, he's yeah. got some, some work out there also about, um, about the new covenant. And I, I agree with his perspective on that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but the church absolutely does benefit. They benefit, the church benefits from all of these covenants. Um, it, I would say even the church benefits from the Mosaic covenant and that the Mosaic mm-hmm. covenant points us to Christ. Okay. Um, the Abrahamic covenant is um, it's a, it's a land covenant. I, I would, um, I would not look at uh, Genesis 12, one to three as being a statement of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. Um, I would look at uh, Genesis 15, 15, seven to 20. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, it actually calls that the in scripture, the, the covenant or a covenant. Um, and it, it essentially ends with to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, mm-hmm. the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So it's right. like a defined geographic boundary that's right. promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so um, you might say, well, how does how does uh, the church benefit from that? Well, 
um, th this is kind of a, an early seed of the promise of the, the literal kingdom that, mm -hmm. that the Lord is going to rule over. And, um, and that's roughly also going to be the land that the new Jerusalem comes down upon. Right. Okay. And, yeah. um, and so you look at that and you think, well, yeah, the kingdom is going to be a blessing to everybody, to the whole world. Mm -hmm. And so blessing to Abram, you know, he, he said also in the calling of Abraham, uh, mm -hmm. um, I'll bless you and make your name great. And then he says, and you shall be a blessing, which I actually interpret as a command, like okay. be a blessing. Right? right. And so the, the blessing, like all of these things that are blessings to Abraham become blessings to the world. And, um, you even see the nations, like, and I don't necessarily think of that as the church that could be people who, mm -hmm. um, who live after, you know, during the kingdom or whatever, or maybe uh, came to faith after that, the, the nations are going to be blessed by, by the kingdom and the rule of Christ. And they're going to be, they'll bring their, their wealth into the kingdom to, to worship him. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, you know, there's, there's definitely blessing there. The Davidic covenant is a direct promise of, mm -hmm. of Christ's rule on the throne, mm -hmm. the new covenant, um, you know, part of the reason when I'm talking about the new covenant, mm -hmm. You know, if, if you read this from Jeremiah 31, it's 31, 31 to 34. Mm -hmm. And it says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and, the house, and with the house of Judah. Yep. So that defines the parties of the covenant, right? right. That's mm -hmm. not the church. Um, and, he's, and Israel and Judah are, are listed separately there because it's, you know, because this was during the time of the divided it kingdom. Divided. Mm -hmm. It says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, mm -hmm. my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So this is a different kind of covenant, mm -hmm. right? And and people have used, used the term uh, suzerain vassal right. covenant, and, mm -hmm. and that's the idea that that uh, the word suzerain is like, it just means like a ruler. So it's ruler. a ruler and a vassal. Mm -hmm. And so the, the ruler blesses the vassal. Okay. All of the covenants are suzerain va vassal covenants, except the Mosaic covenant, which is an, if you do this, I will do this. Mm -hmm. Okay. And all, all the other covenants are just i I'm going to do this for you. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so he says, um, they broke that covenant, even though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. All right. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me for, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Mm -hmm. Now, I, if I go around in my neighborhood and I talk to different people, some of them might know the Lord, but a whole lot of them are not going to know the Lord. Right. right. And so obviously this passage can't refer to something that's current today. Okay? Right. Today. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I don't think that this is in effect today. Um, I think the, the promises here are just to Israel. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or Israel and Judah, if you're looking at the divided kingdom at that time, right. it won't be yeah. divided. And it's interesting. He has the he mentions both, and then later he only mentions Israel. Mm -hmm. But it's an all encompassing because the kingdom is going to be brought back together, right? And um, so so these things have not not been put into play yet, and they they won't be until until Christ returns in His kingdom. Mm -hmm. But but the okay. every covenant is established by blood, right? Mm -hmm. 
And this is no exception. The, the blood that established this covenant is the blood of Christ and he's already paid for it. And so this covenant has been um, ratified. Okay. It has not been enacted. So you're looking at Luke 22, 20 then mm -hmm. when yep. Jesus is saying, this is the cup of the new Testament or the new covenant in my mm -hmm. blood, which is shed mm -hmm. for you. Is yep. that what you're talking about? So he's already paid for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's already paid for it. And absolutely. We're going to be blessed by this. Okay. Um, when, when Israel is restored and, and, and glorified and, and Christ is ruling over them and, and the whole, the whole world is going to know the Lord, right? Um, this is going to be a, it's, it's going to be a blessing to everybody. And of course, also the, the blood of this covenant being shed was shed for us. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's also our iniquity that was forgiven through that mm -hmm. shedding of blood. And it's also our sins that are remembered no more. And so, um, so while this covenant is not, we're not directly a part of it, we, we certainly do benefit. So, uh, so the new covenant, when, when there's this, and I forget what passage it is in Ezekiel, but Ezekiel talks about taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh in mm -hmm. that there's going to be, it, it reads clearly no sin nature anymore. Mm -hmm. And even in, yeah, and we still have sin indwelling us, right? Right. Yeah. And even in Ezekiel's passage, it's a reference, although Ezekiel's writing during the Babylonian captivity, it's still that divided kingdom period, but he's still writing regarding Israel. So mm -hmm. would the new covenant and removing the heart of stone and receiving the heart of flesh, and would that be also applicable to the church when that does happen? Or is that a Jewish only yeah, so so it's it's partly defined as uh, putting the law on their hearts, and I don't I don't know that really the law is ever intended to apply to 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 the church in any okay. way, uh -huh. ever. Like, um, so I I don't know that I would necessarily apply that, but there's certainly a regeneration that we have, and our hearts are right. definitely um, softened by the Lord and all that, and eventually it'll be our hearts will be made pure. So. I don't know that the authors intend to to apply that um, mm -hmm. that metaphor directly to us, but I, I do think mm -hmm. that there's some similarities for sure. Yeah, and and while I'm still studying out the new covenant, I would currently hold the view that the new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31 and the Ezekiel passage, uh, to me has to do with the Jewish remnant at the end of the tribulation, as well as uh, the Jewish people within the kingdom. I think it's also a view that Frutenbaum may hold as well, that mm -hmm. it's applicable to them in, in the Mosaic law, if you will, like you said, written on their hearts and they live in perfect obedience. And I know that Gentiles, when we go into the kingdom uh, with a glorified body, we're going to have that sin nature removed as well. And, and uh, there will be no sin from a Christian's perspective, I don't believe, during that time, and then especially the eternal order. But it's always been my view and my current view that the new covenant specifically in the future is applicable to the Jewish people, uh, not necessarily to the church, though I can see how the church's regeneration and glorification does sort of seem similar in that sense. You know what I mean? Because the other thing I think of, too, is when we read about the Messianic kingdom, uh, we do read passages where all the nations will go and that they'll uh, be taught of Jesus. And Jesus mm -hmm. is going to have a teaching ministry during the kingdom period. And if if this new covenant part of it is they will all know me, 
there will be no more a need for them to tell their neighbor of Jesus than who's needing to get saved during the kingdom. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I look at that philosophically as those being the Gentiles, not necessarily the Jewish people. Mm. And so there's a lot more to it, but I don't know if you think I'm off base or if I need to refine a bit or I don't know. So yeah, I, I, uh, when it comes to a lot of those sort of things, I, I, I tend to uh, try to take an agnostic viewpoint about mm-hmm. it. I, I, um, I think that unless I've got a chapter verse that says something, I just don't want to, I don't want right. to try to figure it out. And I'm, I'm comfortable with just not knowing. And I know right. some people aren't, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. um, but I can, I can just uh, kind of chill and say, you know, Hey, you know, someday the Lord will show us how all this works out. But there's a guy in our church. He, uh, his name's Brock. And when I first got saved, I had a burden to study and read. And I would ask him a lot of questions and he'd always, you know, give me answers. Well, I got to the point where I would just ask him all these, but he, he just, you got to know the guy. He's an amazing guy. He's, he's a great guy. But it, I, I would ask him some of these like off the wall questions that scripture's not clear on. And he'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> he'd just leave it at that. I don't know. And yep. so I learned a lot from him just being like, like you said, just take an agnostic approach. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say, you know, yep. uh, I can have a view, but doesn't mean it's right. So no, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, and, the, you know, it's, it may be that scripture does say somewhere and you have to put a couple of things together and all that. Right. But I, you know, I was talking with uh, somebody once and he, he was talking about kind of his perspective versus my perspective on mm-hmm. scripture and logic. And and he was saying how uh, he, he drew an illustration of like there's a there's a beach and the, mm-hmm. the water's out here and there's, you know, a few stones out there that you could potentially jump on. Okay. And he said, like, the the beach represents what scripture says. And then that mm-hmm. first stone is kind of some direct implications of those things. And the second stone is, you know, implications of the first stone's worth. And then mm-hmm. the third stone would be implications of those. And and he was talking about how uh, my perspective, like I'm, I'm really only comfortable right on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe sometimes I'll jump out to that first stone, but yeah. um, I, I get, I get real, I get real uncomfortable even on that first stone. And he's like, I'm I'm okay going to the second or third stone. And I'm, and I just, I'm really, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm, I'm an exegete. Right. And I'm Mm -hmm. a, I'm an expositor, but I'm not a theologian. So, um, yeah, I can leave those, that second and third stone to the theologians. (laughs) Well, but I, I can definitely, uh, appreciate your position in that because, uh, especially when we get to James chapter three, verse number one, where James says, you know, not many to be uh, teachers for in doing so you're going to incur a stricter judgment. And so I was just talking about this Sunday night when we're going through James is I'm very cautious. If I don't know th- thus saith the Lord scripture says that I'm very cautious saying this is what, and especially with Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and I know, okay, is, are the writings of Paul the same level as the words in red? Well, Mm -hmm. all scripture is inspired by God. So I would say, yes, they are the same. And so I would be very careful unless scripture says black and white, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. I always got to preface saying, I believe this is what it's saying. I could be wrong, or this is how I'm understanding this, whatever the case is. And there's some areas that I'm very strong, like this would say, nope, scripture says this, this is how we can Mm -hmm. see it, whatever the case is. And so I'm like you, I can appreciate you in the fact that, uh, you're cautious to say, thus saith the Lord type stuff, if you're not positive, because as a teacher, 
you and I are both going to stand before Jesus, not only for how we lived our life, but what we taught. Yep. And did we do our due diligence in exegeting and trying to pray and get the spirit to illuminate and, and all these other things? Did we yep. divide scripture correctly? And did we mm -hmm. try to put in the yep. effort? And yep. so I can definitely appreciate that. But I do like the uh, illustration because I imagine is standing on the beach like you and I are. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, we can see all the rocks. But then probably after the third rock, we see the horizon we can't see anymore. Mm -hmm. But the more rocks we go on, the more rocks that might become visible. And so I can I can appreciate the illustration. Well, I got one more question for you again from a dispensational perspective. Uh, this has to do with election. Mm -hmm. And I can understand when Peter writes or even uh, well, when Peter writes uh, to the elect and Peter's mm -hmm. writing to the Jewish people. I can understand how Israel, the Jewish people were elect. They were chosen as a nation, Jacob over Esau, not to salvation, but to the position of, you know, whom. God was going to choose as a nation. Uh, but when we get into Colossians and in Titus, Paul is writing to Gentiles. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 12, Paul says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. And in Titus 1 1, uh, it says, Paul, according to the faith of God's elect, who is the elect in these passages that seem to be addressed to Gentiles? Is this an election? to salvation is the election to position is the church what is the elect in those verses thoughts yeah um this is a, a great question and i i think that um it's one that i i don't necessarily think historically the dispensationalists have have handled very well because um you know the early dispensationalists were coming from a calvinistic perspective okay and so, um, you know, we talk about how dispensationalism sees scripture as, as um, applying to quite a lot of, of different different topics, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than just being about salvation. Right. And I think that dispensationalists were, were really, really did a good job by, by bringing that idea to the forefront, but it necess isn't necessarily applied uh, um, as consistently as it should have been mm. and I, I think also with that there's a there's a um principle a dispensational principle that we call um, old testament priority okay and by that we don't mean that um the the old testament takes precedence over the new testament that's not what we mean we mean that the uh when we talk about an old testament priority we mean that we go to the old testament and we have to understand that basis Mm -hmm. And we build from there to the New Testament rather than saying we take the New Testament in isolation and then read it into the Old Testament. Would that be similar okay. to the uh, principle of law of first mention or law of first reference? Yeah, yeah, okay. there's some similarity there for sure. Um, and so what I would like to 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 see dispensationalists do, and I, mm -hmm. I eventually I think I'm going to write about this a little bit because mm -hmm. um, because people aren't talking about it. I think like they should, especially right. in connection with dispensationalism. But mm -hmm. um, if, if I think that if you look to the old Testament first to see what, what election is, mm -hmm. and then you take that to the new Testament, it brings clarity to the new Testament. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I like to do is I, I look at the very first instance of election in scripture mm -hmm. and um the word isn't used in genesis 12 1 to 3 but um okay. nehemiah 
refers to um, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 as an election, okay. as the election of Abraham. It's uh, Nehemiah 9, 7, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so what happens there is that that makes Abraham's calling the first instance of election that we have in scripture. Okay. And so if you look at that, um, there are some, there are a few different elements to that. Uh, the verse, the verses read now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that phrase here, I want to talk a little bit about the translation. It's the phrase where it says, and you shall be a blessing. Okay. That's, that's an indicative statement, meaning like it's a, it's a statement of fact, right. but um, that's actually a really common way to give a command. For okay. example, all of the 10 commandments are not, they're not imperatives. They're indicative statements. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, if you think about it, thou shall not kill. Okay. That's right. not, a, that's not an, that's not an imperative. That's an indicative statement. And it's actually a very strong way to make an indicative or to make a command. So okay. when you say that you're looking at the word shall, right? You shall, yeah. right? right? Instead of don't, it's you shall not. Right. Like, okay. And it's like, yeah, for yeah. example, if I say, if I say to my son, um, go to bed by nine 30. Okay. Um, you got school in the morning. Right. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a command. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's an imperative grammatically, but that's actually not as strong of a command as if I were to say, you're going to be in bed by nine 30 cause you got school in the morning. Right. Okay. Um, I thought that's of Gandalf. Actually, I thought uh -huh. of Gandalf. You shall not. Pass, that's right. Right. That's That's right. That, yeah. That, that's a lot stronger than don't pass. You that's shall right. not pass. And he, okay. That, word pictures. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good one. I like that. And so um, you shall be a blessing, I think, should be interpreted as mm -hmm. one of those Command. indicative commands. Right. Okay. And so um, <clears throat> you end up with this election of Abraham having, you know, three elements. It is uh, Nehemiah 9, 7 um, mm, okay. that refers to that as the election. Uh, the first element is the call to go. Um, he says, get out of your country. Right. The second is the command to be a blessing that comes with the promise of blessing to him. And okay. here it's, again, it's translated, you shall be a blessing, but the, the, the force I think is, is imperative. Right. And then the third element is that the blessing is to extend broadly and in you, all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. Mm -hmm. And if you follow, if you follow through all the discussion of Israel as the elect, Right. Um, which the one aspect that's kind of missing from Israel's election is the call to go because, um, you know, there are some passages like in Deuteronomy four, five to eight that show that Israel is supposed to be a light, like, oh. um, like the shining city on the hill. Mm -hmm. Right. So that other people can look to them and see, but they're not really called to leave. Okay. That's one distinction, okay. but those other, other elements are there. Um, they're supposed to be a blessing to, to the, to the world mm -hmm. through their, they're calling to um to be god's elect right and that it's not just a few people but it's the whole world that was supposed to see them and be a light to it and you don't really see okay you don't really see any like um it, deuteronomy 4 5 to 8 again lays that out and you don't really see that um playing out in israel's history at all except for briefly under solomon 
and uh, the whole um, discussion about the Queen of Sheba and how she talks about Israel and things. That's oh, right. that's a direct that's a direct fulfillment, you know, in in part of that calling that right. Israel had in in Deuteronomy four. And so all the way throughout Israel, um, throughout Isaiah, other places, Israel is called um, to be God's witness. And that's connected with the idea of the of election or choosing. Okay, those are related words. Okay. Um, election and choosing are are um, both in Greek and Hebrew. They're they're different forms same. of the same oh, same word. Yeah. And so um for example, um let's see. Uh I don't know. Let's see. Um, yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, mm -hmm. who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Do not fear nor be afraid. I've um, Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Mm -hmm. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there's no other rock. I know not one. Mm -hmm. And so it's, this is a common theme that you see throughout scripture that they're called or elected or chosen yeah. to be his witnesses. Okay. Okay. And so you see the same thing in the, in the new Testament. I think actually first Peter um, one and two lays it out probably the best. Um, and there's, I, man, we're going really long. <laughs> um, You're fine. <laughs> let, let me just, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do it. Let's look at it a little bit. Um yeah. Elect according That's to cute. the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So here's the thing. That word elect mm -hmm. doesn't appear there in the Greek. Oh. Okay. Um, it actually comes right before the words like pilgrims of the dispersion. Okay. So. Right. It comes up there. The word elect yep. is up there. So it's yep. in the yep. Greek. It's just in a different location. Yep. Oh, and okay. I, yeah, in my view, it doesn't mean it's not, it's, we're not elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are elect pilgrims of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or I say we, but I mean Peter's audience. Yeah. Cause right. this has a particular, Jewish. this does have, well, it's Jewish, but it's, it's a particular group. It's um, these okay. Jews in dispersion. Dispersion. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, what's going on there is that, um, is that, is that, uh, under the old Testament law, uh -huh. dispersion was, a, um, a consequence of disobedience, right? Right. And so when you look at, when you look at Israel and these uh -huh. Israelites being in dispersion, the assumption that you would make is we're here because of God's displeasure with us. Right. And what Peter is doing is turning that around and saying, no, you are you are elect. You're chosen by God, and you're pilgrims of the dispersion mm -hmm. in all these places: Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Right. And you're there according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay. And then you have these different elements: the sanctification of the Spirit, which I think actually the word sanctification there probably does. It's not a general sense, but it's um, it's uh, it's being set aside to the priesthood. Okay. Okay. Um, that's a very common usage of that term. Okay. They were set aside to the priesthood, according to the foreknowledge of God in this place. They are therefore the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, according to the foreknowledge of God in that place. And it's not that they're sprinkling themselves. Mm -hmm. 
it's there out there to share the gospel, to sprinkle others okay. right, with the blood of Christ. Uh-huh. They're there as God's priests to be, uh, to do that temple service, right? This is all an illustration. It's not, right. it's not yeah, literal. Yeah. It's figurative. Right. Um, with the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, meaning to share the gospel. And if you go down into chapter two, he really um, goes on to explain this. Let me find my, let me find my spot here. Okay. Let's start in verse four of chapter two. He says, uh, coming to him, uh, this Christ as to a living stone rejected indeed by man, by men, but chosen by God. Again, that's that same word, right? Mm -hmm. In Greek, it's eclecton. You can hear that elect in there. Eclecton. Um, Chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable mm-hmm. to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it's also contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone elect precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And that's referring to Christ. There as the elect one. Right. Therefore to you who believed he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone, which the builders rejected has become a chief cornerstone, mm-hmm. a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed, but you are a chosen generation. There's that same word again, yeah. a Royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I'll just stop there. The, okay. the basic idea is just the same thing we saw in Isaiah, that they are called to be God's witnesses. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, I think that that's, that's always what you're going to find. If you follow election, choosing, calling, if you follow those, those topics all the way through scripture, it's always calling to be, to be participants in God's ministry that he's doing or his mission that he's doing with the world. Uh-huh. And you see, sometimes it's not even people that it's called. It's, you know, cities like Jerusalem. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's nations, it's individuals. It's, you know, they're Christ himself is, is called the elect. Right. It's be, because God chose them for ministry. And we learn in, um, in the passages that you mentioned mm-hmm. um, in Colossians three and Titus one, also um, Ephesians chapter one right. that, and, and many other places that we are called by God. And I say, we, I mean, all those in Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everybody in Christ has been called to participation in God's mission there today. It's the gathering together in one, all things in Christ. Mm-hmm. And in, in the sense of, of walking in the works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, um, election always has to do with our, 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 our mission or our calling. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to do with being, with being saved though. Everybody who is called is saved, right? He's not calling unbelievers. Right. So when you're looking at Colossians three twelve, when he says, put on therefore as the elect of God, mm-hmm. uh, a reference to the reminder that, Hey, you're supposed to be my light. Yep. And because of that, election if you will uh you are supposed to put put on bowels of mercy kindness humbleness because if we don't have those on then we're not being the light that we should be i.e the elect if you will Mm -hmm. okay i don't think i've ever heard it explained like that but i do like that 
you know, especially that missional aspect of, you know, the purpose. I have an interesting view and I'm not going to get into it as far as what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Mm -hmm. Uh, I reject the aspect of it being volition, emotion, and intellect. I don't believe Mm -hmm. that's it. Uh, I I believe just really succinctly is that mankind is the only one that has the ability to reflect the holiness of God, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, essentially put. And uh, so maybe I'll do a video on that later. And so, but I appreciate your explanation as far as being the light in this aspect of holiness, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in these passages that are referred to, uh, refer to Gentiles and not mm-hmm. Israel as being the elect of God as well. So I appreciate that. And I'm going to uh, listen to this again and really soak in what you just said. And I really consider that. So, yeah, there's also a, there's also a chapter in uh, my book, the guts of grace called election and mission. And uh-huh. um, I, I dive into these sort of things there too. So if you, if you want to okay. look at that too, we're going to have a link to that in the descriptions of this video too. So that's all the questions I had today. Uh, I know we went, well, this isn't the longest. I mean, I've had like a three hour <laughs> interview, so, you know, we got another hour and a half to go. <laughs> I appreciate the time you had Grant. Uh, are there any closing thoughts, comments, anything you'd like to share, any ministry links or anything at all before we wrap this up? Yeah, just, you know, check out the free grace Alliance. And if, if you, if you're watching this and you think the free grace message is important, um, you know, we really could use your support. We, um, we have a lot of things that we'd like to do and we think the Lord is calling us to, but, uh, we don't, we don't have the money right now. So, um, specifically if you want to, uh, set up a recurring donation, that would be a, a huge blessing to us. Um, even just a small amount would make a big difference. So, okay. Amen. And we're going to have links in the description for the free grace Alliance and where, uh, a donation uh, link can be as well. And so Grant Holly, executive director of the Free Grace Alliance and uh, Bold Grace uh, Church, I believe as well, you mentioned world champion of stick fighting and taekwondo. <laughs> and so uh, again, I appreciate you, brother. Pray for you, your family, your ministry out there. And for everybody sticking around, don't forget, like, comment, subscribe, share, blah, 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 blah. blah. And until next time, God bless. <laughs>